turn in your scriptures, if you have them with you, to the 12th chapter of Luke, or keep them. I always get a kick out of uh, finding things about, <clears throat> you know, things that God's doing about uh, who's reading the scripture. I never know who's going to be reading the scripture. And, and uh, Steve's a professional golfer, real interested in, in uh, he's taken with his wife, of course, on finances. But the first service, the guy who read the scripture was a bankruptcy attorney. And I thought, boy, how appropriate is that? You know, we're here we're talking. Um, this is such a neat parable. And it's not good. This is not going to be a real uh, um, fascinating sermon. Boy, that was a wonderful sermon. This is just real plain because the Lord just sets it down real plain in scripture. And so we'll go down just verse by verse out of, out of the word and just kind of repeat what he said, because <laughs> it's right there. There's not a lot that could be added in, into this. First verse. The land of a certain rich man was very productive. All right, now let's talk about that for a minute. Notice the false assumption that he has that he is the one that is productive, not the land. What will I do with my goods? All of a sudden, he is owning what has happened. He is taking charge and reasoning with himself, not with the God who gave it to him, not counting on the, the resources that he had, counting on himself. There is a trap in finances, in wealth, and that is this, that we are separated from the source and from the circumstances, and we become, now listen to this, I love this verse. Uh, uh, in uh, Psalm 1710, it says, only in the King James Version, I love this King James Version best. He was talking about his enemies, and he said, they are isolated in their own fat. Don't you love that verse? In other words, there is such an accumulation that you are cut off. Wealth or the possibility of wealth or the experience of wealth, even wealth a little bit, begins to cut us off from who gave it to us and begins to cut us off from the circumstances that God put us in and we begin to say, we're the ones that made this. It is ours to control. In Deuteronomy, this is a great... If, if you'll just if, turn back to Deuteronomy 8, I, I want to... Because uh, this is such a neat way to express God predicts it. He sees, he knows this tendency in us. Starting with verse 10, God is talking here and he's warning the children of Israel what's going to happen to them when they become wealthy. That is, have enough. It says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Now that's the starting out part, all right? That is, once, you, once the Lord gives you something, you know enough to say, thank you, Lord, this was a gift from you. That's how we all start spiritually. What's the progress of this thing, though? Beware, remember the, the, uh, the Hebrew, hoy <laughs> all right, beware, here it comes. Lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His ordinances, statutes, which, which I am commanding you this day, lest... When you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them. Now watch, they're going along for a while. They get into the routine. They get used to their wealth. 
And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes what? Proud. And you forget the Lord your God. It's not an intentional thing. You just begin to center on yourself. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now skip down to verse 17. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Now watch this. We have this tendency when we receive a gift to really actually begin to believe we have produced it. That it is ours. When we make it good in this world, eventually, you know, at first we say, boy, you know, the Lord really helped me out here. The Lord really helped me out there. But eventually it is you know, all of the work I put into this thing, you know, God's honoring all of that work. And then it is, you know, good business principles really pay off, don't they? And then it is, look at what I've done. We have a tendency to accept whatever pride, whatever um, compliment comes our way. Uh, W.T. Webster is a political cons- uh, cartoonist. And for a joke, he sent a telegram to 20 of his friends to drive them crazy. And the telegram simply said, congratulations. Do you know, out of all of those people, and he thought, you know, a number of them would call him up and say, for what? What did you do here? What? And, or start looking for an award that they said... Out of 20 telegrams he sent, not one of his friends responded with, congratulations for what? All of them responded with, thanks. So willing were they to accept those accolades, they didn't even have to know what it was for. They just figured they ought to be congratulated on something. There's a a personal, continual tendency in us to want to take credit and to be insulated by our own fat from the God who put us in the circumstances and who gave us what we have. It wasn't the rich man that was productive. It was the land that was productive. It was what God had given him. He couldn't manage the land. The land had its own elements. All he would do, all he could do was be good stewards with the resources God had given him. See, it was the land that was productive. So, when you get to the place where life is going pretty good, please realize that those aren't your resources. God has put you there for a reason. He has given you that for a reason. It doesn't take a Christian to know that. Albert Einstein was probably the most brilliant man that lived in this century, at least the the most well-known brilliant man to live in this century. And he said one time, I remind myself a hundred times a day that whatever I discover has been built 
by the people that have come before me. It is not mine. And whenever I discover something or whatever I add will simply be, I hope, in some sort of payment for what has already been given me. Now, he wasn't a Christian, but he knew enough to know that when he was productive, it wasn't him that was productive. It was what had been given to him. Now, granted, we can mess up the resources pretty bad. I mean, we can make some major, major mistakes and blunt the resources that God has given us. But please, let's not separate what we have from the one who has given it to us. There was a missionary that went to the Batak tribe in Africa. And as he began to explain Christianity to the tribesmen, the chief came to him and said, what are you doing? And he explained Christianity just basically to the chief. And the chief said, so what's that got over the religion? I mean, in his native language. So what's that got over the religion we already have? In our religion, it already says, don't steal, don't lie, don't desire your neighbor's wife. It already says that. To what advantage should we listen to Christianity? And the missionary said this, the difference between this faith and that religion is that in this faith, a living God enables you to do what he has commanded. The chief said, you've got six months. And for six months, this missionary preached nothing but the power and dependence on God. And by the time that six months was over, there were enough Christian tribesmen living in the power of God, God enabling them to do what he had commanded them that the tribesmen said, stay. Today there are 450,000 Batak Christians. Why? Because they didn't separate what God had given them, the law, from God himself. Please, don't separate your research. Don't separate your wealth from the power of God or from the use of God or from the guidance and counsel of God. Don't reason to yourself. Secondly, the scripture says, And he began to reason to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Notice all of, the, all of its possession. <clears throat> and he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. Now, nobody has ever explained to me why he had to tear down his barns in the first place to build large. I, I don't get that. If you get that, let me know about it. Maybe he just had to have matching barns or something, or maybe his barns were tacky. He wanted new ones. But I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. The Greek, by the way, is... Uh, for Barnes is uh, apothecus, and it means, we get the word apothecary from it, a place of goods. So anyhow, here's this guy is, he just assumes, false assumption number two, that what the Lord gives to him is for him. Never crosses his mind that God may give him something in order for it to be used for somebody else, in order for it to be given to somebody else. His assumption is 
that any time God blesses him, that is the money God wants him to have. How many of us have that same assumption? That whenever we get a sum of money, well, God, may be, God must be blessing me. No, he may be blessing somebody else. He may just have given it to you first. Well, I've got to have bigger barns. I've got to have some place to put this. I've got to have some place to invest this. I've got to have some place to store it up because God's given it to me. Wait a minute. Just because God has given it to you in the first place doesn't mean he's given it to you for the second, third, and fourth place. Somebody else might be the second place. It is important to realize that God does not give us goods solely for ourselves. And it's also important to realize that the fat that isolates us, that encloses us, cuts us off from the very people that we may have been given those goods to serve by the assumption that we have to have them ourselves. Did you ever stop to realize that what you think you have to have you don't have to have. What you think you have to have, what you have, a, we not only accumulate good, we accumulate assumptions as time goes along. You know that? And we assume that because God has given it to us for a time, He has given it to us for always. Not true. Not true. We begin to base our feeling of security on what God has given us before. And so when it starts to look like it's going to be gone, we say, that can't be. That's not God's will. I've always had this. I must always have it. No, you don't. We are in a whole lot of trouble because the United States government has the assumption that because it has had certain services in the past, it is always to have those services. And so it grows bigger and bigger and bigger and borrows more and more money to serve the people. The question is, as the government grows bigger, is there more money to serve the people? And the answer is no. Just because you had to have a certain institution to create a service doesn't mean you have to have the same size institution or a bigger institution to maintain the service. But here we have a hungry institution that devours resources for itself to keep for itself and not for its original purpose. And the government assumes that everything that exists is their job. Ms. Davidson, who are you looking for? You get them? We got a crying baby back there. We got a... <laughs> I hear it myself. I hate to have somebody suffer like that. Mother! Okay. We assume that because we have... We've always had a savings and loan. Now, this, this kills me. This really kills me. Do we have to have a savings and loan industry to operate this country? No. But the government assumes that we do. And so the government, who is presently $2.5 trillion in debt itself, is going to bail out the savings and loan industry. It's kind of like having somebody 
who has just declared bankruptcy co-sign on a mortgage. It doesn't make any sense, does it? See, but what's the assumption? The assumption is we've got to keep it going because we've always had it. It must be. It's got to be. Now, maybe it's a good idea to bail out. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that dynamic of continual and growing assumptions to continually grow as an institution. Churches do the same thing. Well, churches got to grow. Why? Why do churches have to grow? So they can get bigger? So what? So you got a big church. What else is new? Churches only have the right to grow in the proportion that they offer services. Let me tell you why most churches have to grow. Because ministers say they have to grow. Because ministers want to be ministers of a big church. That's why they have to grow. Because ministers' salaries shoot up in the same proportion to the size of the church. That's why they have to grow. Come on, let's come clean. Churches don't have to grow. Now, God can bless churches with growth. He's doing it here. And God can bless churches with money. He's doing it here. But I said to Bud Apt, who's our treasurer last week, fasten your safety belt. Because to whom much is given, much is required. As soon as we become an institution, we're out of the business of being a church. We are out of the business. As soon as we start watching that dollar sign, and if that dollar sign gets a little short, we start, well, come on now, bless the Lord. Come on, he's given to you, give to him. What are we doing? We're sucking it up as an institution. It's for us, see? It's not for other people. You know what? Northland doesn't have to exist. We don't have to exist in this building as a church. If nobody chose to give for a month, we'd be out of business. So what? Is God's church going to fold up? No, God's got a lot of churches out there. We could all go to other churches, scare the daylights out of them. <laughs> we don't have to have a lot of people. If everybody takes off, if there's a dozen of us left, and God calls me to be a pastor of a dozen people, we'll go, I can flip hamburgers the same as anybody else can. You know, we can do it. We don't have to have size. We don't have to have money. And we only have a right to have size and money in proportion that we're giving ourselves away. Because it's not given for us. It's given for others. See, what a wonderful sense that is. So we lose the building tomorrow. Are there no other skating rinks? <laughs> now, let's not. I'll tell you what. Next time, let's get a used car dealership or something, you know. Let's do something creative, you know. <laughs> get an old bar, you know. Take it over. Anyhow, you see the point. We don't have to exist for us. There's one thing we need, and that's God. He's the only thing we need. And you know what tremendous freedom there is in that? Tremendous freedom. Let me get a little bit more personal. I know some of you assume that you have to always have your marriage intact, and it's breaking apart, and it's tearing you up. 
And you assume that I will not be able to exist. I will not be able to go on. I will not be able to grow. I will not be able to serve unless I'm married. Let me just say to you, yeah, you can. It would be wonderful to be married. It would even be more wonderful to love your spouse because God wants you. He created marriage in order to feed love, not love in order to feed marriage. You understand what I'm saying? You don't have to maintain the institution. You don't have to maintain the routinization of a relationship. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant so that we can love more and more deeply every day. But if your marriage breaks up, and I hope it doesn't, but if it does, are you going to die? No, you're not. You can go on. If your kids are taken away from you, if your health is taken away from you, we don't need anything other than God. And what God has given to us, He has given to us for the sake of other people. He gave your wife to you, not for your sake, but for her sake in your eyes. He gave your kids to you, not so that you could feel good as a mom and a dad. Well, I just want somebody to love me. <laughs> you know, parents actually have children thinking, I want somebody to love me, so I'm going to have a kid. Wow! <laughs> Rude awakening. <laughs> he gave them to you, not for you, but for them. For you to minister to them, you see. Very, very important. So please, as you get an accumulation of goods, please know that not all of them are for you. That in many cases, He has given them for you to give to somebody else. That is what love is. And we'll have another message on that in a couple of weeks, okay? Um, it is just real important to be able to get into a mode of giving. Okay, let's go, let's go on. False assumption number three. And I will say to my soul, soul, <laughs> I love that. The guy's talking to his soul. Soul, notice it's my soul. It's not God's soul, it's just my soul. You have many goods laid up for many years. Come and take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's where this phrase comes, eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow we die. It's where the phrase comes from. <clears throat> First thing I want you to realize is something very subtle there. And that is <laughs> the verb forms in eat, drink, and be merry in Greek, the take your ease and be merry are present participles, which means a continuous action. You know, something you do continually. Take your ease and be... The eat and drink are aorist tense, which means something you do periodically. And so you are to be happy, but just eat and drink periodically. Could I say to you that in America today it's just reversed? People eat and drink continuously and they're miserable. You know, happiness <clears throat> is not a matter of our appetites. Happiness is not a matter of being full. It's a matter of being fulfilled. But here is the main sense of what we need to understand. We have this 
idea, this fictionalized idea of what I call the BPO, the big payoff. Someday, I'm going to be able to be happy. Someday. Someday, I'm going to have enough. Someday. Someday, I'm going to be a good Christian. <laughs> Someday. Someday, <clears throat> I'm going to have the respect of everybody. Someday, I'm going to enjoy life. Well, when is that? Well, when I don't have any financial worries. And when my kids are all raised. And when my wife loves me, <laughs> learns to love me. And when my business is going okay. And when, and when does that happen? When does that happen? Upon retirement? <clears throat> does that automatically happen upon retirement? Those of you who are retired? Did that big someday come just like that when you got retired? Uh-uh. If you didn't have a sense of that beforehand, you don't have a sense of that afterwards. Because that someday has to come today. Jesus never said, <clears throat> someday I want you to have peace. He always said, peace be with you. Present participle. Peace be with you. My peace I give unto you. Present participle. Not as the world giveth. Giveth I unto you. He wanted you to have it when? Right now. When does forever begin? Right now. Satan robs us of appreciating and enjoying what we have. <clears throat> Boy, it's neat to have a pulpit to leave it on. Dave McCoy made this pulpit for Bible Study Fellowship. It is great. <clears throat> this lectern. Dick Moulton, who was a preacher for a while, tested it out this morning. Got up and said, Jesus said, you know, it stood up all right. Then, <clears throat> then Ronald Ferry, who was also a preacher for, you know, stood up and did the nervous, you know. Did you ever have a preacher that did that to you? <laughs> Do one of those. <clears throat> we know where He's coming after me. <clears throat> Anyhow, what was I talking about? Oh, the someday thing. See, you got to be able to pause and just enjoy yourself wherever you're going. <sighs> someday never happens in the deepest sense of the term unless it happens today. You won't be right now what you will be in the future. Agreed. And hopefully all of our lives we will grow and learn to appreciate God more and more. Agreed. And hopefully all of our lives we will come into a deeper and more loving appreciation of our family and of all the worldly goods He's given us and for the reason of His giving them to us. Agreed. But let me just ask you to take time sometime every day to appreciate and to have peace and to have a sense of fulfillment and to take your ease and be merry. Kick back. Go out in your backyard. Reflect off the pool. If you haven't got a pool, you know, go pick an orange. If you haven't got an orange, uh, lay out and catch sun. I don't care what you do. Kick back and say, thanks. Thank you for my family, for my health, 
that I've even got a roof over my head? You know, you don't have to be tremendously wealthy to be thankful. You really don't. That's another false assumption in here. I, I was watching TV the other day, and there was a, a, a show about the homeless on, and there was one old guy. I felt so sorry for him. He was, he was crippled. He sat, he sat in a wheelchair like this. His hands were kind of like this. And he did have a wheelchair, and he had to kind of go along, with, you know, in the wheelchair like this, you know. Uh, homeless, he didn't have the money to get into a house and um, lived in a car. Car didn't work, but it had a roof on it. It was someplace to put his blankets. And the interviewer said to him, aren't you dissatisfied? Aren't you destroyed? Aren't you depressed? And the guy goes, no. You know, I've got a lot more than a lot of people have. Ugh. I'm thinking, this guy's crippled. He hasn't got a house. He doesn't know where his next meal's coming from. And he's got a lot more than other people have. God, forgive me. Mm. So, the false assumption that someday you can have happiness is one to watch. And then, just one more. There is a spirit of accumulation that we all have, that all of us have. I don't know what... I, has anybody moved recently? Anybody moved, changed houses recently? <laughs> you won't raise your hands, will you? <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to call, stand up and tell your story. Uh, you know, Beck and I save nothing. I mean, we are not sentimentalist people. We just, it's not who, although I'm getting more sentimental as I get older, you know, I just kind of hanging pictures of my family up, you know, you kind of get older, you kind of start appreciating that stuff. Pretty soon I'm going to lecture my kids on who their great-grandparents were. No. But I, you, get, you get a little bit more sentimental as you get older. But Beck and I, um, we've got one cedar chest full of stuff. By the way, this has nothing to do, I feel a sense of, tremendous sense of freedom this morning. Can I just share with you, the deodorant we got smells like a cedar chest. We go out and we get, do you ever just stop in the, in the deodorant aisle and spray it and sniff it in the aisle? Do you ever do that? It's great because your nose never sweats. I mean, you just go... And we were doing this, and I got them all mixed up. The odor's all mixed up. There's a, there's a deodorant out that smells like mothballs. Honest to goodness, smells like mothballs. I put some on the other day, and of course I always put about a pound and a half on because it's the middle of the morning, and you just go and you fall asleep while you're putting it on until your underarms get so cold you got to wake up. And so I, and then you walk around like this. But anyhow, stuff, I, I said, a sweater came from the cedar chest. Well, I, what's she doing in a store in the cedar chest? I'd speak to people, you know, and I'd, Lift my arms up like this. They start talking about their grandmother for some reason. <laughs> I don't get it. Anyhow. See, just take a moment and enjoy. It's okay. Anyhow, there is a spirit of accumulation that we all have. And, and it's symbolized by cedar chest, but it comes about a lot more in this, and you run into it whenever you start to move, and you think, well, we don't really have much stuff. You learned what you've packed away for years. We do that with visible things because we want to save them. We might need them someday, see? There's a spirit of accumulation, and it is especially true with things you can see. Now, 2 Corinthians says, we look not to the things that we can see, but the things that are unseen. But the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen are eternal. So the things that you see that you're accumulating, bank, balance, stuff, goods, 
is temporary. You're going to lose that. That's what this is. That's what this is all about. But we need to be accumulating eternal things. And that's what two weeks from now I'm going to talk about. But anyhow, there's this spirit of accumulation we have. The more we get, the more we think we have to get. All right? The, the best, I mean, it doesn't even have to be good stuff. The best illustration I've heard of this is a story I heard recently about a truck driver. And somebody was asking him about, you know, truck driving stops and which ones were good to eat. And so they, so they mentioned this one stop and he said, that's terrible. That's a terrible place. He said, the mashed potatoes are runny. The green beans are totally tasteless. The roast beef is tough. And the worst part about it is they give you such skimpy portions. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Why would you want a big portion of a bad thing? But see, it's a spirit of accumulation, isn't it? We want what's ours. We want to save it up. Well, Scripture says, God, said, God comes to him and says this. You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. Who now will own what you have prepared? Now, don't miss this. If he had the right attitude, that would not be a condemnatory statement. Only if you have a spirit of accumulation and you want to own things, does it cause any pain at all for God to come to you and say, well, who's going to own it now? Right? Because if in the first place you're saying, well, this isn't really mine. In the first place you're saying, well, maybe my kids can use it. Maybe my neighbors can use it. Maybe my church can. Maybe, you know, maybe other people can use it. If God comes to you and says, well, who's going to own it now? You go, well, maybe my kids, maybe my neighbors. Maybe. That's a great thing. You know, you're glad about that. But if you have a spirit of accumulation, then it causes you turmoil. Who's going to own it now? Oh, is somebody else going to own it? Somebody besides me? Yeah. You can't keep it. So is everyone who stores up the things of this earth and is not rich toward God. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, we do like to have... And your word says that some accumulation is not sinful. And it says in Proverbs that in a wise man's house there is drink to consume, but in a foolish man's house he has already used it all. Your word says that there is some wisdom in some sort of a layover of our goods between when you give them to us and wherever you mean for them to go. But, Father, some of us are caught up in a fascination with having. And it shields us from you. It allows us to think that we can depend upon ourselves instead of on you. And gradually, we forget how it is to depend day by day and to grow close in our dependence on you. For all of us that have, please remind us not to separate you from the goods you've given us, but to continue to let you be Lord of those so that whatever you have produced in our lives, it is, it is given to who you meant it to be given to. And for those of us who are hurting right now 
And we don't know our financial future. And we are very, very not afraid, but very, very concerned because much of what we accumulated is not certain. Help us to give it to you like you've always had it and to let you do with it whatever you want so that you can do with us whenever you want. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn in your scriptures to the 12th chapter of Luke, we will go down this scripture. I don't know who got the scripture reader this morning, but you couldn't have gotten anybody more appropriate to a sermon like this than a bankruptcy attorney. That's what he does. And I'm thinking, boy, if anybody knows about the perils of accumulation uh, or the desires uh, to accumulate, a bankruptcy attorney would. Jesus begins this brief series on finances with two things. First of all, a warning against covetousness. And secondly, a philosophy of what you would do with money if you had it, okay? Which is basically the way we ought to approach finances. We ought to know, in case we ever get any, what we're going to do with them. That would be our plan. Now, a lot of us use that as a way to get some. Lord, if you give me this, I'll do that. You know, that's not what he's talking about. Not making promises. Just how will I use these to the best extent? Now, the man in the parable, the rich man in the parable, you know he's rich because he already has barns. The rich man in the parable makes several false assumptions that I see continually. First false assumption that he makes, if you will read it for yourself, the land, um, he told them a parable saying, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. Now the rich man assumed that it was him that was productive. But the Bible is real plain. It wasn't him that was productive. It was the land that was productive. So false assumption number one is that we are the producers instead of the receivers of the benefit of the fruitfulness of what God has given us. Somewhere along the line, and God foretells it in the journey of the children to the promised land, if you are, let's, let's just turn back and look at that. That is such a rich passage. If you'll turn back with me, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me just read some of this. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Beware. Okay? Or they. Beware lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His ordinances, His statutes, which I have commanded you this day. Lest when you are, have eaten and are satisfied and have built 
good houses and live in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now skip down to verse 17. Otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. You see the tendency of people. The tendency of people is to forget. I mean, when we first get it, we're grateful for it. And we realize this is a gift of God. But as it continues to pour in, we have this thing that clicks off in our mind. Well, you know, maybe I am, maybe God has given me a talent. That's the first step. God has given me the talent to produce this. The second step is my talent has produced this. That's the second step. Very easy step to make. We have this tendency. W.T. Webster was a, uh, is a political cartoonist. He wrote, just as a joke, 20 of his friends. He sent 20 of his friends a telegram. And the telegram simply said, congratulations. Do you know what all 20 responses came back? Thank you. None of them said, congratulations for what? What I do? All of them assumed that they had done or produced something in their own life that deserved congratulations. We have that tendency. Anytime we think somebody's wishing us congratulations, God included, we say, well, thank you. I'll receive that. God has not made us the producer. You have much less to do with your success than you tend to think you do if you are successful. And sometimes you, not, you have not as much to do with your failings as you think you do. God orders your steps. The Bible says that. Man plans his way, but the Lord orders his steps, right? Let's say that in Proverbs. Okay, then it is imperative that we remember that it is God who has put us into a certain circumstance and continues to give to us through our labor. The wisest people in the world, the smartest people in the world know that even when they're not Christian. Einstein said, I remind myself a hundred times a day that I simply build on other people's labor. He was a genius. He created the theory of relativity that a whole new um, era of physics was ushered in upon. But yet he would say, it wasn't me. I simply built on what other people did. This was provided for me. And then he followed it up and said, what, when I work, I simply want to pay back what has been provided for me. Now Einstein wasn't a Christian, but he was simply bright enough and wise enough to know his own limitations. The rich man wasn't. The rich man said, these are my goods. 
There's a story about a missionary to the Bartok tribe, known as Batak tribe in Africa. And he went in and began to explain the principles of Christianity. And the chief said to him, good question, we, have, we already have laws that say do not steal. We already have laws that say do not desire your neighbor's wife. We already have laws that say um, do not lie. We have all of the laws, all of the commandments that you're talking about. Why is your religion any better than the one we already have? And the missionary was wise enough to say this. Because we have a living God that enables you to keep those laws. The Batak chief let him stay there for six months to see if that was true. After he'd stayed there for six months and saw the power of God, and for that entire six months, that missionary taught on nothing other than the power of God then fully depending upon the power of God. After six months, Batak tribal chief said, stay, for what you say is true. Today there are 450,000 Christians of the Batak tribe. Why? Because they did not separate what was provided for them from the one who was providing it. You see? Very important. Very important. Second point, if you will read further, further with me. It says, and he began reasoning to himself. Very important point. Didn't ask God. Didn't ask anybody else. None of this in the, in the counsel of many there is wisdom stuff. He began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do? Since I have no place to store, look at the word, my crops. And he said, this is what I will do. Comes up with his own, does, doesn't get his direction from any place else. Said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. Now I have yet to figure out why he would tear down the barns he already has. Maybe some of you can explain that to me. But I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. False assumption number two. That what is given to us is given for us. What is given to us is given for us to have instead of to use. He never even broached the subject with himself. Maybe this isn't for me. Maybe God has given me this so that I could be a steward or a custodian of it to manage it for somebody else. Maybe, maybe all of the world's goods, all that comes to me is not centered on me. Now, that's a tough thing to realize. There is a psalm, and I love this psalm in, in, King James, in the King James Version. I don't like it in the other versions. The King James Version says in Psalm 17.10, David's talking about his enemies, and he said, they are enclosed in their own fat. Don't you love that? They are trapped in their own fat. In other words, prosperity tends to produce pride and pride that cuts us off from God, and pride 
produces isolation so that we are trapped within ourselves. And we don't even begin to see other... We, be, we begin not to see other people anymore or other uses for what God has given for, to us except on ourselves. People do that with church all the time. I mean, when God blesses you with a spiritual truth, the first question to many people is not how can I put this into practice in my everyday life. It is, boy, I love that. Give me another one. See? And pretty soon we go and we go just to be fed, just to accumulate it, just to store it up, never to use it. Never to use it. So we have all of this knowledge. But you know what? Knowledge will pass away. It'll pass away. The only thing that lasts is love. So there's a tendency in all of us when we are prospered to figure that it just, I mean, it's for us. And it's for us to grow bigger. The United States government is a prime example. And I will not get into the whole thing because I don't want to, you know, yeah, government, yeah, you know, I'm not a government basher. I'm glad to be an American, glad to pay taxes, good money well spent. But I tell you what, the government has an assumption that it has to be as big as it is or bigger. The government has an assumption that it can never shrink. The government has an assumption that it has to, in order to produce more service, grow bigger. But do you know what? The bigger it's grown, the less service that it's had. We have become, in our government, enclosed in our own fat. We've got a big government that is not offering as much service that is only growing by bureaucracy and employee. And you know what it does? It provides the assumption that everything that is out there is to feed it. It provides the assumption that it has to rescue everybody and everything. This thing about rescuing the SNL industry, I mean, I don't know a lot about it, but the assumption is sure we'll rescue the savings and loan industry. Now, it's kind of comical in the first place because our government is two and a half trillion dollars in debt and they're going to go rescue the savings and loan industry? That's kind of like having somebody on welfare co-sign for a mortgage. I mean, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you see, the assumption is, of course we will rescue because we have to have it. No, we don't. Of course we will grow bigger because we have to have big government. No, we don't. On a more local level, level, what happens to churches? And what I've seen in churches again and again and again is that as they start to grow as institutions, and we are, so watch out. As we start to grow as institutions, pretty soon we start to think of the welfare of the institution. Do you know that God couldn't care less about Northland as an institution? He doesn't need this church. He does not need this church. He is providing for it well. I looked at the offering last Sunday. I said, hold on, bud. To whom much is given, much is required. It is simply a matter of giving it to us for somebody else. And the minute we get focused on the institution of the church, we are in dangerous, deep weeds because churches don't need to exist as institutions. And where churches get all mixed up is when, they, when the 
the offerings start to go and they start to get down, then they're just subtle guilt trips. And the whole thing starts to revolve around money, see? And you got it, boy, hadn't God given to you? You better give back to him now. But what they're really saying is, keep my job. You know, let me continue to be a well-paid minister. Let me continue to, let us continue to have the church, see? Come on. You know what? I don't, he's not going in this direction right now, but if he felt, he, if he would cut us off for a couple of weeks, we could lose the building. So what? So what? Can we not find another roller skating rink somewhere? <laughs> now, nah, let's not do a roller skate. Let's do a used car dealership this time. Whatever. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I can flip hamburgers as, as well as the next guy. And if God calls me to minister to you, if, there are, if, he, if he files us down to 50 people, we'll go flip hamburgers together and we'll build a church somewhere. Out on their tree. I don't care. Somebody's got some property somewhere. We don't have to have this place. We don't have to have anything except him. And you know what tremendous freedom there is in that? Tremendous freedom. Because all that he gives us he is giving us for others anyhow. And if he gives us a little less, it just means we have a little less to give away, but not for long, because <laughs> he wants to provide for all of his children. I, I saw a film on the homeless the other night, and something really struck me. Maybe I've said this to you before. Something really struck me. There was this family who was really trying. I mean, they were out... They just didn't have the money for a hundred dollar or for a month's deposit and a month's rent and all that kind of stuff. And so they were doing the best they could and they were living in a tent. And the lady who was living in the tent, they were interviewing her and she said, yeah, you know, but it is so tough on so many other people, so much more than, than we, we've taken in two or three kids since we started out because they didn't have as much as we did, so we took them in. Now, here are homeless people that cannot afford a roof over their head. What are they doing? Taking other people in. It's not a matter of how much we have. It's a matter of realizing what we have is not strictly and solely for ourselves. That's what the deal is. And it is so important to realize that as soon as we know that what God gives us, He gives us not to have but to use. By the way, that $17,000 excess you see in there, it's being used. It, we haven't got it. Don't be sitting out there saying, what can we do with that money? <laughs> We've been paying off our... We have been using it. It goes out. We don't, keep, we don't keep much. We don't keep much here. We don't keep lean. <clears throat> We're not going to get enclosing fat around here, I'll tell you what. No fat churches. But uh, where was I? Oh, when, when we become realizing that God gives us so that we can be content in giving, not in having, there comes a whole different freedom. There was a story about a king who was very discontented. This, this is a parable. It's a made-up story. Very discontented. He was miserable. He was grouchy. He was depressed. 
<clears throat> so he called for his wizard. He said, wizard, I'm miserable, I'm grouchy, I'm depressed. What can I do? His wizard said, wear the shirt of a contented man for a year and you will be cured. So he called all the servants to him and says, go out in all my kingdom and find a contented man and get his shirt. <laughs> Offer him whatever you need to, just get his shirt. Well, they were gone a week, then two weeks, three weeks, six months they came back. And they came in, no shirt. <laughs> the king said, you mean to tell me that in all of this kingdom, there is not one contented man? And the servant said, well, yeah, we did find one. But he'd given his shirt away already. That is, that is the secret to contentedness. To know that we have it in order to give it. Now, I'm going I'm to talk more about this later on. I'm going to talk more about it in a couple of weeks. But it is important that we realize that particular principle. False assumption number three. That happiness or peace is the sum of saving or comes only at the attainment of a goal. Now watch this. Watch how it reads. It says, starting with verse 19, or that is verse 19. And I will say to my soul, my soul, get it? He's, he's got that adjective again. It's not God's soul. It's, it's my soul. And by the way, the soul in this context is simply the deepest, most inner personality. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now this is where, of course, the, the saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, comes from. I had something just flash through my mind. I know what it is. Look at those words. <clears throat> I didn't think there were any important Greek uh, uh, points to bring out, but that's interesting. It's just a, you know, did you know? <laughs> just a footnote here. The verb forms there, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry, are different verb forms. The first and last one is a present participle, which means it's a continuous or repeated action. So taking your ease and being merry is a continuous is what he hopes for his soul. The second two are in an aorist tense, which means they are just one-time events, you know. You don't continuously do them. Eating and drinking is not supposed to be a continuous continuous habit. It's just supposed to be a small part of being merry. Could I just make the observation that most of us have that reversed? <clears throat> we are miserable and we eat and drink all the time. Um, so just wanted to make that little shot there for those of us that when we get depressed, we're out at the refrigerator going, what is there? Okay. Important. So important. So, so, so important. We have conjured up in America a vision of retirement that is very much like this picture. Someday, I will be able to, be, to relax. 
Someday I'll be able to lay back and take stock of it all. Someday I will be able to find joy. After I accumulate enough and I have been released from whatever work I have and all of my kids are raised and I learn how to get along with my spouse and we have our home paid for and on and on and on. Someday I'll be able to take my ease. Is that what Jesus said? Jesus never said it. Jesus' approach when he approached people was what? Peace be with you. There's a present participle. It was not someday, may you find peace. It was right now, peace be with you. Now listen to what I have to say here. It's very important. If you can't find it now, you'll never find it. If you can't find it now, if you can't see what God is doing for you right now, chances are you will never see it. It will never come to you. Peace and happiness is not a future event. It was never meant to be a reward. It was meant to be a standard of living. It was meant to be the norm for a Christian. Yes, there is always a challenge. Yes, there is always work to be done. But every day, we need to be able to sit down and take some time to enjoy what God has given us to take our ease and celebrate the fact that we have healthy kids or that we have a spouse that is learning to love us or that we have a work that is at least putting some food on the table so that we can sit and enjoy God's blessings in our lives. What are we waiting for? I know there's a lot to be done. It'll wait. It'll wait. Most of it'll wait. Every one of us can afford 20 30 minutes a day to praise God for what He is doing now in our lives, not what He will do someday. In Greek history, there are two characters. Pyrrhus was a major, major, major military leader. And Sinius was his assistant who had a little better perspective on things. And history records a conversation between Pyrrhus and Sinius. Pyrrhus said, Sinius, we are going to mobilize our forces and conquer Rome. And Sinius said, that's a pretty tall order. Pyrrhus said, we can do it. I know we can do it. And Sinius said, okay, well, what are we going to do after we conquer Rome? And Pyrrhus said, well, we'll conquer Sicily. It's right there available. We'll conquer it. And Asinius said, well, okay. What are we going to do after we conquer Sicily? Pyrrhus thought and he said, then comes Greece. We'll conquer Greece. What are we going to do after we conquer Greece? Macedon lies to the east. We'll conquer Macedon. What are we going to do after we conquer Macedon? And Pyrrhus realizes he's running out of countries here. So he better come up with an answer. He says, well, then we'll sit down and enjoy ourselves. And Sinius says, can't we do that now? God would say to you this morning, I know there's a lot for you to do. I'm giving it to you. 
I know there's a long way to go, but can't you sit down and enjoy yourself right now with what I've given you, with me? Can't you do that now? It's all a matter of perspective. I saw in that same show about the homeless, there was a crippled man living in a car. car wouldn't run. It just served as protection and a place for some blankets. He did have a wheelchair so he could get around a little bit. And it showed him opening the door and climbing in. And they asked him if he wasn't terribly miserable. And he said this, no, I'm really not. There are so many people that have so much less. I've got quite a bit when you come to think of it. See, what he had, that so many of us in such a big hurry to accumulate who knows what, don't have, is just an appreciation, a spirit of appreciation for what God has already given us. Even if he takes it all away tomorrow, it can be appreciated today. It can be appreciated today. The last point. Please realize that there is a tendency in all of us simply for accumulation of what can be seen. I don't know what kind of comfort that gives us. I do know that it does give us some comfort. I do know that many of us love to accumulate stuff. How many of you have moved recently? Okay. Were you startled at what you had accumulated over the years? What are we going to do with all this stuff? Let me ask you the next question. Did you get rid of all of it? <laughs> stuff you had not used for years, you took along, didn't you? Yeah? Sure. Well, I just want this. Why? I just want it. Don't know why. Just want it. I had a story once about a guy who, a truck driver, who um, was asked how it was at this certain truck stop, what the food was like. He said, it is absolutely terrible. It's the worst truck stop in the area. The roast beef is tough. The mashed potatoes are watery. The green beans are tasteless. And the worst part about it is they give you the skimpiest portions. Wait a minute, you'll, it'll hit you. Why would you want to accumulate something that's so bad? Why would you want more of something that is so bad? Because we have this tendency in us, we want, we want, and we want to have it right in front of us. Well, the Bible says that what we think we are accumulating, we're not really accumulating. Notice how the Lord speaks to him and says, But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Now I want you to see something very subtle here. By the way, Dave uh, McCoy made this for Bible Study Fellowship. Um, it's actually a lectern. We've actually got a lectern in this church. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> D Dick Bolton, who used to be a preacher... Tested it this morning. Like, <laughs> stood up and everything. And then Ron LaFerrera, he used to be one too. And he, you know, for the nervous preachers, he always used to go like this. Rub the sides off there. But anyhow, I want you to notice something very subtle here. That actually, that question is a threat 
to people who want to own, but it's absolutely no threat at all to people who want to give it away in the first place. In other words, if for somebody with a generous heart, if God would come to you and say, look, you're not going to be able to have this. Who is going to have it now? Somebody with a generous heart could joyfully say, my kids will have it, my friends will have it, the community will have it, I'll love it, this is great. This is wonderful. So it's an attitude of the heart that condemns a person. It's not the dynamic of having it taken away. So watch, anyhow, it says, Now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Second Corinthians, it says, We do not look to things that are temporal, but to things that are eternal. Because things that are temporal are are things that are seen, but things that are unseen, I'm sorry. <laughs> because the things that are seen are temporal and the things that are unseen are eternal. Watch out in your heart for the spirit of accumulation. The spirit of wanting to gather what you can see. And avoiding thinking about the things that you can't see. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be talking about storing up spiritual treasure. Storing up treasures for yourself in heaven. Those are far more real and far more long-lasting than anything you can have down here on earth. Anything. But yet, what do most of us desire to accumulate? Try to accumulate what we can see. Just doesn't float. Just doesn't go. Well, again... Just a little teaching time, no big story grabber at the end. No big tidy wrap up. If the toga fits, put it on. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm wearing that toga because I do have a spirit of accumulation. I want a number of shoes. <laughs> I want a number of things that will somehow guard me against depending on you. I do want to be wise, and I know that you have nothing um, against wise provision. I know it also says in your Proverbs that in a wise man's house there is wine to be drunk, but in a foolish man's house it has already all been consumed. So I know there is nothing in your word that does not say store up in moderation. But Lord, that's not what we come to you with this morning. The, what we come to you with is accumulation to the point of not having to depend upon you, not desiring to depend upon you, being isolated and insulated in our own fat. There are many of us that want to be taught how to use what you've given us. What you can do with us, what you can do for others instead of for us, give us that generous heart. As our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had it, let His Spirit come and live in our behavior so that we can lay our lives down for our friends, so that we can be a servant instead of a master, so that we can give up the form 
of all heavenly claim and come down and think of other people first. And as we are doing that, Lord, give us a sense of contentment because we know the power of love and the joy of being one of your channels, one of your funnels, one of your vessels. Thank you for the knowledge and the relationship with Jesus Christ. And thank you for the circumstances we are in right now. Some of them are not desirable, but we know that you're going to use them, not only for our benefit, but for others also. And we will watch you do it. In Jesus' name, amen.